I've got Graham Hannigan back in the studio. Graham's been kind enough to come in to tell us more about the White Cliffs Solar Power Station project and the restoration. You're the secretary of the uh, secretary of the Friends Group. Yep. It's a it's a conservation, yep. not a restoration. So right. people people always ask me, are you going to get it going again? Mm. Um, no, we're not. We're simply preserving it for future generations of Australians. Can you give us the background of yeah, what, sure. what that is? What is the solar in power In 1979, station? the Australian National University in Canberra was given a grant by the New South Wales government mm. to investigate the use of solar energy to provide power for outback communities. The ANU had been working on this since about 1971, so they already had much of the work done. So by 1980, they, they were given the grant in July of 1979, by 1980, they had the design all finished and they started construction. The lead professor on the project was a guy called Stephen Kenef. He was the or Kenef. He was the the son of a Broken Hill miner. So his parents came to Australia after the First World War from Bulgaria, mm-hmm. um, and worked in the mines. It was a place where that we uh, a lot of immigrants were working at the time. Uh, Stephen, by the time he'd finished uh, primary school, was obvious that he was a very smart young lad and his parents sent him to Adelaide to boarding school where he matriculated at age 15 and went on to to initially do engineering. Uh, By 1971, he was the head of the um, physics research group at ANU in Canberra. Um, So they started the... Uh, building of the power station in Whitecliffs. Well, Whitecliffs is in the far west of New South Wales. On the edge of the desert? Um, the desert? It, is, it is a very, very arid country. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, no, there's no rivers. It's 100 kilometres from the Darling River, which is now dry anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 300 kilometres from Broken Hill. Mm-hmm. He knew that there was plenty of sunshine there. Mm-hmm. It was an ideal spot to build a solar power station. By 1982, it was uh, operational. It ran on dummy load for a couple of years, and then in 1981, it was operational. 1983, they actually connected it to the town load. They'd uh, ironed out all the faults, and it then ran until 1997. Mm-hmm. So these this town, and like a lot of towns like it, I guess, at the time, they ran on individual generators. generators. So each house had its yep. own generator and its own sort of private yes. energy there was no, requirements. no town supply. Mm. Mm. So that would have meant that they had to do a lot of um, hauling of, of fuel around to run these generators. Yep. Yep. Uh, and also, I guess, something that intrigued me in reading about this was that that this was sort of hoped to possibly be a solution to providing power to outback Australia and remote Australia generally. This was yes. a sort of a, a test case, if you like, a model for if this worked, maybe it could be applied elsewhere. Yeah, yeah um, you've got to remember this in the early, very early days of uh, solar power generation. Mm. So um, uh, flat panel photovoltaics, were, development of was very early. There was no in high power inverters. That was the problem. One of the biggest problems was that there was no way of converting DC energy to AC energy, AC energy, um, except via mechanical means, which meant a DC motor driving an alternator. 
you would have lost a lot of energy just in that yes. process, wouldn't you? Yeah, very inefficient. Mm. Very inefficient. Mm. But they solved that. And you've actually taught, I think you've explained this to me in previous interviews, that, that breakthrough um, of, of being able to convert the DC to AC. Popular technology, uh, probably going back to the, at least the Second World War, mm. of um, producing AC energy from DC, especially uh, uh, banks of storage batteries. So mm. you had um, a reliable power mm. if you happen to run out of, of um, dieselene. Now so, the so, so sorry to interrupt you. So so yeah. so now if you've got your you know you've got your Tesla Powerwall, let's say, yeah, where you've got your solar panels on the roof, uh, and then you've got these battery storage, which means that you can you don't rely on sunlight to be able to power your house. You can power it once the sun's gone down at night from those batteries. Mm. They are also converting from DC to AC. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's yeah. a fundamental um, requirement of being able to use solar yeah. power. Yeah. Right. So briefly, the way it worked was the. Power station has got 14 mirrored dishes, five metre mirrored dishes. Um, these all track the sun. Uh, there's a heating coil at the focus of each dish, which is fed with water through a capillary. That water's turned into superheated steam at 550 degrees, seven megapascals, which is then fed through to a converted Lister diesel engine. Mm. And again, this was a, um, a stroke of genius because every shearing shed, not every, but pretty much every shearing shed has got a, or had a listed diesel engine in it at some stage and easily repairable by any agricultural mechanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Lister diesel was converted to steam. Uh, it powered through a ratchet clutch the alternator, which provided a single phase 240 volts to the town. And also in series with that, a DC generator which charged up a bank of 300 volt DC batteries, mining batteries. If a cloud came over, the steam pressure might drop off. The the clutch would disengage between the listed diesel and the alternator, but the power would flow the opposite way from the batteries into the uh, now motor to keep the alternator spinning. The other thing that that the a station embodied which was quite revolutionary was the idea of dispatchable power so by ad- adding an additional 14 kilowatts of, of load into the system the batteries would kick in and pick up that load within three seconds so it's basically the same as what the tesla batteries are doing today in in south australia and planned for other places in australia you instantly need more power it's dispatchable within microseconds in regard to the Teslas. But they were doing it back in 1980. With the, They didn't have a name for it then. Uh, I don't think dispatchable power had been thought of. Mm. Mm. You were going to a music festival in the middle of nowhere out in outback Australia. You drive into this town, you notice this bank of what looked like a bit like sort of satellite dishes because your background was in, mm. was in telecommunications and satellites yeah. and that sort of stuff. So it would have intrigued you to see this. And then you discover what the history of it was, and then you thought to yourself, "Well, this is a, a um, this is, it's been compared as a sort of engineering achievement for Australia, especially at that time, to you know to the building of the Sydney Harbour Bridge as a, as, a, as an important engineering sort of milestone for Australia." Mm. You, you sort of saw this thing in disrepair and thought to yourself, "Well, what a pity to let this just waste away." Yeah, Engineers Australia recognised the significance of it back in two thousand and six and affixed a plaque. Which was fairly so soon after it stopped, so two years after it stopped. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I decided it was a site worth 
preservation. We formed the, the Friends Group in December of last year and the current news is that we've been awarded a grant by the New South Wales Government, what's called an activation grant. So it's a grant to prepare the site to make it suitable for educational and tourism. Now fortunately it was already set up for that but in the 12 years since it was shut down the the uh, interpretive display is very very dilapidated the little working models no longer work uh, the toilets don't work the to- the water's been turned off the place has got birds nests and uh, vermin infestations and dirt, removed the dirty bat- and dusty are the batteries still there or they were taken no away? the batteries yeah uh, in 97 it was converted from solar thermal being steam to solar photovoltaic so these were were a cube of photovoltaic cells which were placed at the focal point but because of the high temperatures involved they were water cooled so the batteries were taken away and also as the town was connected to the grid ah. so the batteries were no longer needed and they were they were taken away. Obviously, they were obviously good scrap value, I guess. Mm. So, so you've got your grant, and tell us what sort of things you're going to do with the grant. A lot of cleaning and scrubbing to to get the uh, the dust of twelve years that's accumulated. The the, uh, the station is built into shipping containers, so it was actually built in Canberra and loaded on the back of trucks and trucked up to Whitecliffs. Mm. The shipping containers aren't sealed, so there's been ingress of dust into the containers and everything in there, mm. even in the oil of the sump of the, the engine. You, know, you pull it out, it's red with dust, just gotten everywhere. So clean it up and get the water back on, get the toilets working, put in you know, hand-washing facilities that aren't there, get the interpretive displays working, refresh all the photography, do an audio-visual as well, which will be available on Wi-Fi, so we can put a little uh, totem Wi-Fi node in. That's right, you told me the Adelaide um, company doing it for you. So that, yeah, so that people, if they turn up regardless for night or, or day, can get a, uh, a virtual tour of the site. One of the biggest problems is the lack of re- human resources in Wycliffs. It's a little town of, of just 148. Um, so having volunteers to do the work drawn from the town is going to be difficult. So I'll be looking for grey nomads to come and uh, help with the work. And I'm, I'm sure they'll be delighted to assist. I've already had offers of help. Mm. Can you give us some contact information if there are people who happen to be out there on the road and they're in western New South Wales and would like to get involved in uh, helping out with this project. Absolutely. The Facebook page is called The Whitecliffs Project, but also if they want to email me, just at secretary at mailcan.com. So secretary at mailcan.com, and I'll put you on the mailing list and keep you up to date with what's happening. Okay, terrific. And the other thing which we talked about off air before is that something that needs to happen is for in the event of high winds the the dishes to be put into a safe position so that involves actually meaning that the the actuators or the 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 mechanics that allowed these dishes to track the sun when it was being used to actually generate electricity those same actuators have to be used again yes and that and that is to put them in the case of a high wind Let's say it's over 90 kilometres per hour. At 80. 80, 80. Rated to 80 kilometres mm-hmm. in an operational condition. Mm-hmm. 
once the wind's over 80 kilometres per hour, they then, or in, when they're operating, they would then be pointed vertically upwards, mm. so they're offering a minimum wind resistance. Yep. Um, and they haven't been, and for the last, since the decommissioning, they haven't actually, they've been just left wherever they were at the last time they were used, presumably. Yeah, so they're, they're not in that safe position. No, they're pointing sort of southish and just slightly higher than the horizon. Mm. They're being buffeted around and there's damage being done to them. And fortunately, the dish designer, Dr. Peter Carden, is still alive. He's in lives in Canberra. And, yeah, he reinforced the, the need to stow the dishes if there's high winds. He said they're only a mild steel frame and the welds will eventually crack and they'll disintegrate. Um, yeah, so one of the projects, part of the project is to reinstate the, the uh, stone mechanism, which only needs to be done on the elevation drive, which was a, a screw drive, nothing particularly fancy about it, through a 35 to 1, I think, reduction gearbox. If we need new electric motors, um, hopefully the, the ones there are all in good condition. They've been sealed up over the 12 years. Right. But um, and they were we, re refurbished not that long ago within the last twenty years. Yes, it has been done at some stage. So you got your grant, which I think is in the order of about sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, just short of sixty thousand. And what do you estimate the additional? You were saying that there is a shortfall, so it's not going to cover everything. You've got some additional needs. So not only do you need some labour to help out, but you also need some additional funds. To do things Absolutely. like... Absolutely. Yeah, the grant doesn't cover things... So it's more for infrastructure. So mm. repairing, plumbing, painting, doing the infrastructure that is broken or it doesn't exist. For instance, disabled access. There was no thought of disabled access back in the 1980s. That's something we want to do today so that the, the access to the site is available to everyone. So the grant doesn't cover things like the insurance for the volunteers, safety gear, yeah, licenses, software licenses, that type of thing. So Does we it? are short of about $5,000. Okay. So if any, any um, companies would like to contact me, secretary at mailcan.com and assist with the funding, would be delighted. And, of course, we'll recognise your sponsorship on site and uh, on any websites that we may have. Well, the industry that you see as possibly giving some money is the solar industry. Yes. Uh, and, and I think you also said that one of the manufacturers or the, the, uh, I think an early company that was involved in, in this project has actually given some money towards it. Yeah, I was quite surprised. Jones and Ricards was, uh, or still is, a Sydney company that's been around for, I think, about 100 years. I think it was formed in about 1920s. Mm. They were the manufacturers of you know, bespoke electrical gear and they actually built the single-phase alternator. I think it's a 48-kilowatt single-phase alternator, which powered the town. As it so happened, I went to school with the niece and nephew of Justin Rickards, of Jones and Rickards, and uh, the niece is still on the board of the company. So I, I rang her up and I said, how about a, a sponsorship? So, yeah, Jones and Rickards have been the first to come forward with some, some corporate sponsorship. Oh, fantastic. Mm. It's good of them, isn't it? We're talking to Graham Hannigan. He's the secretary of the Wycliffe Solar Thermal Power Station Friends Incorporated. There was no way that we could shorten that down and, and still be meaningful. So it is long-winded, mm. but we just like to call the project the, the Wycliffe's Project. Okay. There are two tourism websites for Wycliffe's. There's also 
the Central Darling Shire have got tourism information, as does the Brogan Hill City Council. Mm. So we probably use existing websites rather than try and create our own. Yep. But we are on Facebook, so just look for the, the White Cliffs Project on Facebook. Okay, great. The other thing you can do, as I did last night, just out of curiosity, just to get an idea how remote this place is, was to go to Google Earth, and you can actually just put in White Cliffs Solar Power Station, and it takes you straight there. So yep. someone's dropped a pin on the station, and it, and it lets you get a view from above and see exactly how remote this place is. Yep. That in itself has some, I don't know, some sort of romantic connotations to me, the adventure of going that far out into the middle of nowhere. And, and you know, Peter Garrett used to say, well, he did in one of his songs, no one goes out back, that's that. And we are a, a country that all are huddled around the coastline, uh, and yet there is this amazing interior. You know, if you, f- if you go to Bali, you fly over it, you know, just this endless red sort of Marscape. Uh, which which the uh, the area around Whitecliffs has actually been compared to, forty to fifty degrees in summer, very yes, little rain, very even less now because of the drought that's going on in, in New South Wales, and I think I read somewhere that that this area has some of the, it has the highest temperature variation of anywhere in Australia, so presumably it can get very cold at night. It does, yeah. Mm. Uh, interestingly enough, most of the residents of Whitecliffs come from Victoria. Right. And they go up there for winter because the winter climate is beautiful. Mm. They're called winteries. Right. A lot of people live underground. They have underground dugouts. It's an opal mining town, so it was an opal mining or still is. It still is a little bit of opal mining there, Mm. um, but I think they're looking for tourism opportunities from other other things. Mm. There's an underground motel, which is a great experience. Mm. Underground tours, mine tours. Uh, all the usual things. Mm. I encourage people to go. Mm. They desperately need tourism dollars. Mm. The farmers up there are really struggling with the drought. Mm. But of course, all of the businesses that rely that rely on the farmers for income are now looking for income from some other source. So tourism is the thing to do. The other important fact for Melbourne people is that the Cobb Highway is being sealed. So the Cobb Highway, you go up through Chuka continue going north, up through Hay, Ivanhoe, Wilcannia, keep going north another 100 kilometres and you hit uh, Whitecliffs. And once the Cobb Highway is sealed, that'll be bitumen all the way. Right. So, yeah, no no dusty driving. So even better for the wintries. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully that'll make the travel for, for Victorians up there uh, easier. Mm. My own observation is that a lot of people are reluctant to get off the bitumen. Especially if you're if there's any rain about, yeah. Those those outback roads become impassable once it's wet. Yep. The sort of dividing line between what you see in Australia and what you don't see often is uh, where the bitumen stops and how prepared you are, what kind of vehicle you've mm. got, and how really generally how prepared you are for um, really going off road or off sealed road. Yeah. Uh, I'd recommend it to anyone if you've got the time and um, and you've got a vehicle, then uh, get off the sealed road because mm. there's a lot of stuff out there to look at. And, oh, absolutely. Mm. Yes, the um, Midwingy National Park is just near Whitecliffs. That's another great spot to go and visit. Mm. The Lake Piri uh, National Park as well. It's a dry lake, but it does have um, mound springs in the lake. Um, and, and, of course, it had a big Aboriginal population. Right back in the days before the Europeans came here. Broken Hill is nearby, not that far away. Broken Hill's a great town. We've got the Broken Hill 
Broken Heel Festival coming up. Broken uh, Heel. Broken Heel, which is the celebration of the Priscilla, oh, yeah. Queen of the Desert oh, okay. film. Right. The whole town <laughs> dresses up in drag and it's, it's really? a hoot. Oh, it's great wow, fun. What great a fun. And that's, and that's come about because of the film, has it? It has, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Broken Hill, lovely town. Mm. Lots of pubs and cafes and restaurants. That's about a few hundred kilometres north of White Cliffs, is that right? No, it's east. Okay. It's closer, closer to Melbourne. Okay. And closer still to Adelaide. Everyone in Broken Hill considers Adelaide as being their nearest, nearest city. That's where they go to do their shopping. <laughs> and Whitecliffs people go to Broken Hill, so it's a 600-kilometre round trip to do the shopping Wow. for Whitecliffs people. What's the population of Whitecliffs these days? 148. Okay, that's full-time, and mm. then it swells a bit in winter. Yeah, the winter has come in, and now, of course, all the, the grey nomads go up there. There's the arts festival, they have gymkhanas, they have a music festival that all helps to keep the town going. But it's a great spot. I encourage everyone, anyone... If you live in Australia, you've got to learn appreciation of the outback. Yes. And get out there and enjoy it. Whitecliffs Power Station uses concentrated solar thermal power. The mirrors concentrate the energy to a focal point, which is heat energy. It's about 14 kilowatts per dish of heat energy, which is then converted to steam. This technology is not new. It actually goes back to Archimedes. Back in about 200 BC... There's no actual uh, writings by Archimedes that he did it, but it's been reported by others that during the siege of Syracuse by the Romans, Archimedes had mirrored shields, polished shields, focused on the Roman ships. To burn them or blind them? To set the ships on fire. Wow. So this is Syracuse in... uh, Egypt. So it was being held under siege by the Romans, and Archimedes set fire to the Roman ships using mirrored shields or polished shields. And did they actually have a a lens effect or they were flat? Uh, Well, because there's no... Archimedes may have written about it. There's no existing Mm. text describing it at the time. Mm. So the texts we have that were were written at a later stage. Mm. So we know that it was a known technology... Mythbusters tried a number of techniques. <laughs> the second attempt actually succeeded. So uh, it's certainly possible that it, it, it was a real story. It mm. wasn't just uh, a fabricated one. Brilliant. So, so it's been known that you could focus the sun's energy and you could create intense heat. by That's been used even in warfare for yes, a long yep, time. Yep, mm. yep. 2000, excess of 2,000 years ago at least. All right. Well, thank you very much to Graham Hannigan for coming in. Anything you'd want to add at this point? We no, everything? I think that, uh, that pretty much covers it off. All right. We've got the money. Now we need the people to do the work. Yes, and a few, and about another $5,000 to cover $5,000 for the actual day-to-day running costs of the group. Mm. Mm. Is the town right behind it? Are they very supportive? Yes, we had a town meeting back in May after we applied for the grant. And we, out of a town of 148, we had 30 people turn up, which I think is a pretty good response, having been involved in residence committees uh, locally with much b- 
bigger communities and uh, much smaller turnouts. So I think 30 people was pretty good. <laughs> well, it's, it's almost, what, a third of the population. Yeah. Well, thank you very much to Graham Hannigan for coming in. He's the secretary of the group that is involved in the preservation of the world's first solar commercial power plant that was built at Whitecliffs in western New South Wales. And they've got their grant. They've got a few more dollars to chase, but uh, this great example of, well, of solar technology, but engineering in Australia, up there with the construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, it has been uh, secured, and this is in no small thanks to Graham. So um, well done, and thank you very much for telling us about it. Thanks, Piers.